Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before God, let's stand and affirm the promise that relates to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. And so allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights higher than us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in this service be cursed, as before, all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, covetousness, ignorance, all of this. Let it depart from the sea, from the tents of your holy people and stand, Lord, on the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness. May your saints be clothed in your salvation and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and allow us to find your holy countenance. Let this service be presented into your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 and 48 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Called to perfection. We know that this promise commanded, commandment is written in the book of uh, Matthew and is presented to us in a series of sermons of Pastor Arkady, and it is the inheritance of all saints of all time. It is addressed by Christ specifically to his disciples. Therefore, those who do not accept the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment and likely will never. We have stopped to study the purpose of the righteousness of God in the heart of a person, expressed in our ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God. As written in Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. According to these words, the rule of the peace of God or the righteousness of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, if the selective love of God will dwell in our hearts and we are clothed into the selective love of God. And the character of the selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit in Scripture in the light of seven unearthly virtues. These are written in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2-8. through 8. This is virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly love, and love. 
We know that each of these virtues of the fruit of virtue contains the characteristics of all other virtues, given that they flow from one another, fulfill one another, strengthen one another, and are found in one another. These virtues are the moral perfections and the standards that are inherent to the essence of God, given to us through Christ, and in which we are called to uh, we are called to be enriched by. And to enter into the inheritance of these virtues is possible only after accepting the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life, in the obedience of our faith to the faith of God. And through the inheritance of these great and precious promises, we are made partakers of God's essence. So all of these components must be found in us, and we have all agreed and are studying what Pastor Arkady has offered to us, that according to virtue, we have seen the source, the source from which flows all good. This is our Lord in the face of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And knowledge, knowledge is our ability to view what God views as good and distinguish what He views as evil. Self-control, which flows from knowledge, it helps us, the quality of self-control allows us to select what God views as good and to reject what God views as evil. Whereas patience, the fourth quality, allows us to look at what God views as good and wait for the fulfillment of what we have seen with patience. Godliness, the fifth quality, it allows us to keep ourselves undefiled from the world and keep all that God calls as good as good. And all of this is in the quality of brotherly love, the readiness to go from death to life into the life in which is the coronation of the seventh quality, love. Therefore, the selected love of God expressed in the seven unearthly virtues and characteristics has nothing in common and cannot have anything in common with tolerant love that is filled with selfishness, inconsistency, and ignorance. And apart from the tolerant love of man, the selective love of God differs in that it carries the all-consuming zeal of God, His omnipotence, and His absolute wisdom that is impossible to use for selfish and ignorant reasons. Selfish and ignorant reasons of man. With this, the power of the selective love of God in the format of the earthly virtues is called to destroy the power of death in our bodies and replace it with the reign of the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our bodies into the resurrection of Christ in the face of the new man. So tolerant love cannot do this. This can only be done by the holy selective love. It can destroy the power of death and replace it with the reign of the resurrection of Christ and clothe our bodies our new man in, into the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, we will look uh, deeper at the love of God agape that flows from the virtue of God in the atmosphere in which dwells the peace of God and the boundaries of brotherly love. And with regard to this, it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions. First, what does Scripture say about the origin and essence of the fruit of virtue, discovering itself in the heart of a person in the love of God agape? which proceeds from the brotherly love that we are called to demonstrate in our faith. Second, what purpose is the love of God agape that flows from brotherly love called to fulfill and the demonstration of it in our faith? Third, what conditions are necessary to fulfill, to demonstrate in our faith the fruit of virtue 
and the love of God agape which flows from brotherly love. And fourth, according to which signs should we test ourselves for the presence of the love of God agape which flows out of brotherly love? So, brotherly love, we see that Pastor Akadi has dedicated a lot of time to it. And he is still studying and uncovering this component because without it, we are unable to move from death to life. That's why it's necessary for us to also spend time in it. And so the first question, let's again read it. What does Scripture say about the origin and essence of the fruit of virtue that discovers itself in the heart of a person in the love of God, agape, which flows from brotherly love that we are called to demonstrate in our faith? We know that in Holy Scripture, the level and the power of the selective love of God coming from brotherly love and discovering itself in brotherly love is defined and acknowledged only through the level of the hatred of God towards evil and those that practice evil. Hebrews 1.9 Of Jesus it is said, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Considering that evil expressing itself in hatred that comes from the pride of man and the good that expresses itself in love that comes from brotherly love are programs, then to love righteousness and hate lawlessness is possible only in its carriers, which are the programmable devices. As written, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. And therefore, in order for us to understand in ourselves the characteristic of God that comes from brotherly love, we need to test who and what God loves and who and what God hates, not just what God loves and what God hates, but we need to have the courage that today there is a deficit of to give a definition of who and what God loves and who and what God despises or hates. In democratic structures, this is necessary to be quiet about because if the pastor begins to speak these truths in these structures, he is going to be asked and he is going to be asked to step down from his position. You can you can't say what God hates, but who or who or what he hates you cannot talk about, but we are going to study who and what God loves and who and what God hates. Because loving what God loves and hating that which God hates, we are going to be able to fulfill the fullness of God and be filled with the fullness of God and express in our faith the reaction of God towards good and evil. Just as we had uh, reviewed during our last Tuesday, who and what God loves, today we are going to study who or what or who and what God hates. These are seven qualities, and today we will review about four of them, who and what God despises or hates. And today, or here, we must understand that this who also lives in me. Not just in someone or somewhere, but he lives personally in me, this someone, this someone whom God hates. 
Let's take a look at the first one, the first. The selective love of God flowing out of the virtue of God in the atmosphere in which dwells the peace of God in the boundaries of brotherly love. He despises the planting of trees and pillars near the altar. Deuteronomy 16, verses 21 through 22. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. So this is an interesting uh, decree that it was not, you. one must not build a wooden image near the altar which you build yourself to the Lord. He forbid this. He said, I despise this. But before we begin to give a definition of what in worship of God should be considered groves of trees and pillars erected at the altar, I will give another scripture related to a grove planted with the trees at the altar, which usually leads to to sincere scholars of scripture to embarrassment. It turns out that upon a sacrifice, a grove could be planted out of certain trees against which God has nothing. And it's possible to also plant a certain kind of trees at the altar, which God does have something against. Let's look at this difference. And this is what Abraham will help us with. He will help us see the difference, what grove God loves and what grove he despises upon the altar. Deuteronomy 21, verses 33-34. Genesis, I should say. Deuteronomy is a little further in the book. Let's go back a little bit to Genesis. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. And therefore Beersheba is a place in the desert in the very south of Judea, which at that time belonged to the Philistines. At this place, at the well dug by the slaves of Abraham, about which there was a dispute between the shepherds of Abraham and the shepherds of King Abimelech, an agreement was made between Abraham and Abimelech, so as not to do harm to each other. To consolidate this treaty, Abraham gave Abimelech seven sheep, hence the name Bathsheba, in Hebrew, Beersheba, which means well of seven or well of an oath. The quiet logical question arises, if God hates the groves planted from the cheese at the altar, why didn't God blame Abraham for the sin of planting the grove from the trees at the altar? Let's take a look to the ancient pagans and that culture which Israel had adopted from the Gentiles. We know that ancient pagans planted evergreen trees such as spruce, pine, juniper, cedar, fir, and larch. And they planted these for their gods. And these trees symbolized fertility, protection from disease, and eternal life, immortality at the altars arranged by their gods. The pillars that they placed on the altars were the image of Astarte, carved from the spruce or pine, which they called the goddess of fertility. Thus, these trees served for them as a receptacle of sacred vitality and were of cold significance. But today, in the Protestant midst, condemning the worship of icons representing the image of trees planted Near the altars, they found expression in such components as, in a matter of the law of works, or the law of works, in virtue emanating from the flesh, 
These are the groves that are built upon the altar, which God says, I despise these groves of trees. What is this culture that you've taken from the pagans? Works of the law. Israel should not have the law of works. They should have the mercy of the Lord. It also is in the virtue emanating from the flesh, in consecration of days, holidays, in replacing the structure of theocracy with the structure of democracy, in desires to be enriched, in the legalization of the use of alcoholic beverages, as today is accepted, we have heard as cultural wine drinking. These are all groves that are built near the altar, or planted near the altar. It's also in the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and evangelism, which we have not been sent to, in the washing of the feet upon the breaking of bread, when the when the people say, I cannot forgive my brother, uh, yet I will wash their feet in replacing the cover of the Almighty with some kind of coverlet. These are all groves of trees that are planted upon the altar of the Lord, and God says, I despise these, I hate these. I hate these groves of trees that are planted near the altar of the Lord that are in the service of God. Now that we know the purpose pursued by the groves planted from pine trees at the altar of the Lord, which God hates, because all of this, um, Israel had served God with these things. Okay, the pagans, they served their gods, but when God saw that Israel began to do the same and worship to him, he said, I despise this. What are you doing? I hate this. Now, let's look at the grove planted from trees in Beersheba by Abraham at the altar that he built for God and called on the name of the Lord there. How did his grove differ from the grove that was planted by the by the uh, by the pagans. In Hebrew, a grove of trees planted by Abraham at the altar he built in Beersheba consisted of a white oak. A white oak. Like we have a lot of in our state and in Washington, evergreen trees that we had. Washington is known as the evergreen state. The forever green state. Abraham did not choose the tree, the evergreen. He actually chose the white oak, which which these which our states lack, from which Noah built an ark for the salvation of his house. And therefore, the image of the grove planted by Abraham at the altar built by him testified to the state of his heart in which the salvation of God was and which expressed itself in the dignity of a stranger in the land of the Philistines. So the white oak, we're talking about the state of the heart of the righteous. Abraham did not need to do anything to feel righteous. He knew this. And this white oak is a firm tree. It is a very strong one. It is a state and atmosphere of the righteous one. And therefore, later on, we'll see how this white oak he placed from his heart and he planted it in the land of Philistines in his body. He took this promise and he planted it in his body. For Abraham, the image of the Philistine land was his terrestrial body at that time. And the condition of a stranger in the image of the grove planted by him, made of white oak at the altar built by him, indicated that in his heart there was a promise that his body body would be adopted through the redemption of Christ. That is why he had planted a white oak, the image of salvation, in the land of the Philistines in order to move salvation from the substance of the spirit to the substance of his body. And as Pastor had said, God makes a new covenant with our spirit. 
He makes a new covenant with a new man. For what reason? So that the new man, in a short amount of life, in the life of a person, could save his soul and adopt his body. If the spirit does not have enough time in the span of the life of a person, the reborn spirit with which God made a contract, if it cannot save the soul and adopt the body, he loses these substances and perishes for God. Perishes to God. This is the responsibility of our spirit. And the soul must hear this and say, whoa, I need to then cooperate so then uh, to help my spirit. And the body says, well, tell me what words I need to proclaim and all three, so that all three of us can begin to do something. Because the years are going, the years are passing. We are growing older. The promise has not yet been taken. And therefore, the image of Abraham in our terrestrial or earthly body. So now who is Abraham in this land of Philistine? This is the rational sphere of our new man, yielded by the mind of Christ. So Abraham is the rational sphere, and it is not just here, it is first and foremost in our heart. This is the rational sphere of our new man that is yielded by the mind of Christ. This is where there are the tablets. The tablets are here, and then tablets are also in our mind. But here, Abraham is is the mind of Christ in our heart, which dwells in our spirit. And the shepherds of Abraham, grazing the flocks of his sheep in the dignity of the thoughts of the new man, in the revelations of the Holy Spirit, revealing the truth in the heart, are the rational capabilities of our new man. So, our new man, he is a new man. He has the mind of Christ. It, he is represented by Abraham. And there are also the shepherds there. This is the ability of our new man to think. Our new man cooperates with the Holy Spirit. Our soul, rational sphere, cooperates with our spirit. In order to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, we need the mind. And in order for the Holy Spirit to cooperate with the spirit, he needs to have the rational sphere of our new man in our spirit. And this is called the mind of Christ or the teaching of Jesus Christ in our spirit. And the capability of our new man to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the ability of our soul. This is very interesting. Let's read further. Whereas the image of King Abimelech, who had made a covenant with Abraham, an agreement with him, is the way of thinking arising, or rather, the rational sphere of our soul renewed by the spirit of our mind. And therefore, the shepherds of King Abimelech is represent the way of thinking arising through the hearing, the preached word, and the the rational capabilities of the soul. Here we have a cooperation between the spirit and the soul, between Abraham and Abimelech. And therefore, if the grove planted by Abraham at the altar built by him in the land of the Philistines, consisting of a white oak, found itself in the state of the heart of a stranger living in his terrestrial body, in which he expected the adoption of his body through the atonement of Christ, then the trees planted by the Israelites under the altar of the Lord, borrowed from the Gentiles, testify that they think or ponder upon earthly things. So, Abraham meditated upon what is heavenly and the rest of the groves of trees of the Gentiles is 
pondering upon things of that are that are earthly. Let us let us read Philippians chapter three, verse nineteen through twenty-one. Whose end is destruction? Whose God is their belly? In whose glory is in their shame? Who set their mind on earthly things? These are the groves that the pagans had made upon sacrifice furthermore it says our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself these are the planted white oak in the land of the philistines this means that our body is going to coincide with his body in that in this place he offers us to separate those people who ponder upon things of heavenly and those that wait for their earthly body could coincide with the body of Christ. This was meant to plant the white oak or to plant salvation, not just in our heart, but to spread salvation of our soul, all salvation on our soul and our body. Of course, in order to hate the trees borrowed from the Gentiles or pagans and planted under, near the altar of the Lord, it is necessary to distinguish the trees planted by Hiram at the altar of the Lord from the trees borrowed from the Gentiles and planted at the altar of the Lord. So look here. Again, out of what we have read, what kind of summary can we conclude? What kind of groves are planted near the altar? So when we pray, when we offer, when we uh, offer a sacrifice to God, then there is a grove planted there. Either this is the grove out of evergreen trees, or it is out of white oak. If white oak, if it is out of white oak, then the salvation that we have in our spirit and that we must spread unto our soul and unto our body. The evergreen trees or the fir trees, they related only to this physical life. They meant that here, there, and there, we don't know what is beyond that field. We want for it to be well for us here on earth. And therefore, in order to plant the white oak, it is necessary for there to be a cooperation that happens, the cooperation between Abraham and Abimelech. And for our shepherds, the shepherds of our heart, our spirit, there where the teaching of Christ is written, for them to cooperate and not argue with our mind. If our mind stumbles and argues with what we hear and place in our heart, there's a conflict that occurs, and we must understand that Abraham has not yet uh, made an agreement with Abimelech. This means that we do not have a grove made out of white oak. This means that we have not spread our salvation unto our soul and our body. This means that all of those prayers that we conduct out of, due to the conflict of Abraham and Abimelech are groves that God despises, are groves of trees that God despises. The groves of trees that God despises are the law of works. I do works in order to feel righteous. We practice righteousness because we are righteous. Virtue comes from the flesh. Our virtue comes from the preached word of God. We look and we select that which God views as good. The consecration of holidays. People play, uh, celebrate one time a year and celebrate the resurrection of Christ, whereas pastor at each service says, let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies and proclaims the substance, not just at every service, but for our whole substance of our essence. The groves out of fir trees are the structure of democracy. The structure of theocracy are the groves made out of white oak. They ponder upon things of earthly, 
These are fir trees. People desire to become enriched, but we desire to invest in our heavenly bank. People use alcoholic beverages and legalize them because they have the groves of the pecans, but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Those that have planted the grove trees near the altar of the Lord, they use the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to bring fame upon them, but we use the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to serve some some of our brothers and saints. People want to evangelize, whereas uh, they want to go somewhere in another country, whereas we evangelize at that place where we are, in our homes and at work. People want to wash their feet at the breaking of bread or at communion, but we want to, upon communion, repent of our sins. People want to wear veils, expressing their godliness before God, but we acknowledge the order of God that exists in this, uh, we acknowledge the order of God that is in on the road, in the church, in schools, we acknowledge the order of God in all structures. You see, they're completely opposing programs in these trees, and this is very interesting to know and remember. This is the first thing that God hates. The second thing that God hates, the selective love of God flowing out of the virtue of God in the atmosphere in which the peace of God rules in the boundaries of brotherly love, hates those that hate the Lord. So we are talking about who and what God hates. This who, again, we have to have courage in order to preach about this. Psalms 139, verses 21 through 22. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. With full hatred, I hate them. Pastor reminds us that upon studying the love and hatred, we must refer not to most emotions, but to actions, the actions of obedience to but upon knowledge these are love and hatred are not feelings but they are obedience they are obedience to the commandments of God love is the obedience to the commandments of God and hatred is obedience to the commandments of God and these are not emotions this is obedience to the commandments of God that are called to lead our feelings behind them to love is to remain in fellowship and do good to those whom God loves. And on the contrary, to hate is to avoid communication with those whom God hates and not do good to them. Uh, in this regard, Pastor says, I remind you that there is a category of enemies who we should do good to in order to conquer evil with good. Those enemies that we should do good to in order to conquer evil with good. These are people of this world, our household, and our and carnal Christians. Our household that is under responsibility, for example, the wife, children for me. Parents are not under my responsibility. I don't answer for them. That's why in this list, if they despise the Lord, then here are difficulties that arise for them. And carnal Christians, these are people who are necessary to love, although they are enemies and they resist us and they challenge us and so forth and they stumble. Here, though, we must love them and do good to them. There's a category of enemies who we are forbidden to do any good to because it is impossible to defeat them with good. All those that we have listed already, we can 
conquer with good. Again, I really like this thought, idea. Who do we do good to? We must do good to all of those who are possible to conquer with good. You think, can you can you conquer devil with good? One one brother prayed. Oh, Satan, I will will, will to do good to you. No, if I were to pray like that, this there's no forgiveness for me. Devil does not have forgiveness. This is his essence. He does not have forgiveness. And he ceased to pray for the devil, this brother did. It is impossible to overcome with good fallen angels and people. What kind of people? Those who knew the truth, knew the truth, and then turned away from the holy commandment devoted to them and left their assembly. For this reason, they became carriers of the program of dishonesty and lawlessness. Followers and champions of tolerant love should understand that no matter how much you do good to the devil and the bearers of this lawlessness, you will not only defeat them with good, but besides everything else, you will doom yourself to one fate with them and you will not be able to defeat them with good. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2. This truth is described well in these words. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Again, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Take a look here. The king of Judah did not do better than the king of Israel, but the king of Israel, he was lawless. He did worse. He did worse than the king of Judah. In this case, God called his wrath upon this person, upon which the harvest came in his life. The irrefutable proof of love for the law of God is called to be the holiness of truth in our hearts, which determines the nature of our new man raised in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holiness of truth. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The holiness of truth in the heart of the righteous demonstrates the dignity of God's selective love emanating from the atmosphere of brotherly love in which God pardons the vessels of mercy and incinerates with his fury the vessels of anger that are outside the atmosphere of brotherly love. Job chapter 37 verses 11 to 13. Also with moisture he saturates the thick clouds, he scatters his bright clouds, and they swirl about, being turned by his guidance, that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy. In one of his divine inspirational songs, David, defining the nature of God's selective love emanating from brotherly love, which determines the scorching holiness of God, said in Psalms 11 verses 5 through 7, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. It would be very strange and unnatural for God if He, in the period of the Old Testament where one God 
God, and in the period of the New Testament, he would suddenly change and become another God. As the wicked constantly repeat about this and lawless people, supporting these wicked who are carriers and exponents of the program of sin. And in order to suppress the fantasies of a frenzied crowd of wicked and lawless people who are among the people of God and who challenge the irrefutable holiness in the nature of God, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Malachi, announced, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Israel was not consumed because God said, I do not change. If God would change, then today Israel would not exist. The fact that uh, Israel is restored in their boundaries, not in full boundaries, this means that it was not destroyed. Why? Because God, even these things through history, economics, geography, says, friends, I have not changed. I am one and the same. I am the Lord. I did not change. Therefore, uh, Jacob, O sons of Jacob, the, the Israel is not consumed. And so that the advocates of tolerant thinking and their followers who constantly convince themselves that God loves everyone have no doubt in reason that God's selective love is only in the boundaries of the law of Moses. I will quote the words of Christ which cannot be attributed in the format of the law of Moses. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. God is the creator of the word. Here it is spoken of him in this place of scripture. He said the following words. Hypocrites, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Surely, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. According to Apostle Paul, the image of such people whom Jesus condemned to eternal torment in fiery hell are people who have the format of godliness, but have denied its power. Again, they are the people who have the wonderful appearance of godliness, but have denied its power. So their inner state does not coincide with their outer state. Having a form of godliness inside, though, they do not have the power and the essence of that which they represent. Their inner essence does not coincide with their outer essence. 2 Timothy 3, 5 But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Again, I will say, from such people turn away. What does it mean to, what does hatred mean? We talked about how, how do, who do we hate? Enemies. Devil and the lawless and so forth, who are his image. To despise means to turn away. Again, love is not an emotion. Hatred is not an emotion. Love and hatred are obedience to the commandments of God, which do not go based off the emotions, but lead our emotions. Therefore, this does not, this means from such people turn away. 
And in order to obey the holiness of truth that dwells in one's heart, from such people one should turn away, evade, and avoid, which means to hate. We have repeatedly emphasized that in Scripture the reward of the righteous is contained in the fruit of the righteous, which is the tree of life he grew in the measurement of time, and that the retribution of the righteous on the earth in the fruit of the tree of life will be connected with the retribution of the wicked and sinful. So the righteous must grow in the eating of his heart to the tree of life, and when he grows the tree of life, in order to receive the reward to eat of this fruit, then at this time he will give a reward, a reward. Psalms 58, verses 10 through 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. In order to understand the essence of this allegory and what way the righteous person will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked on the earth, we needed to see how the wicked sheds the blood of the righteous on the earth. And in connection with this, we will turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verses 33 and 34. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. It should be borne in mind that in this decree we are talking about the land in which God lives, that is, the environment of the holy people. Thus, the body of Christ, represented by the assembly of saints, is the earth in which God dwells, and therefore the holy body of man, created from the earth, is also the earth. So the Church of Christ, as well as our bodies, these are that earth which are, which blood should not be spilled. If the blood is spilled in the church of wicked and lawless people, then upon this earth in our body, um, body, this is a certain person that is called an old man. He spills this blood, and this land could be rid of this curse only having spilled the blood of the old man. Apostle Paul, blood must be present in the battle. The battle must be with blood. We should attack the old man, not just to protect ourselves, but also to resist him. Not just protect him, but also demonstrate resistance. Also demonstrate resistance because this blood has defiled our body. We will say figuratively, therefore, through the spilling of the blood of spilling of the lawless people, the body will receive resurrection. The spilling of the blood the shedding of blood in the holy land in which God dwells is an action which means the killing of a holy man by another holy man and such a murder in the holy land which is the body of Christ in the face of the bride of the lamb is hatred of one holy person towards another holy person which arose because of envy and his talents and success hatred generated by envy manifests itself in the spreading of bad rumors and false slander about a man whom we envy in our hearts in attributing our vices to him and ascribing out to ourselves his virtues and therefore a man who is a bearer of envy in his heart which manifests itself in hatred is the programmable device of the fallen cherub who at the time also ruined the envy that grew into hatred. 
1 John chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Being among the holy people, an envious person defiles the whole environment in which God lives. To cleanse the land in which God abides from blood spilled by an envious person, it is necessary to shed the blood of an envious person who, by spilling the blood of another person, defiled the earth. And therefore, shedding the blood of the wicked means to get rid of such a person by expelling him from the midst of God's people and break off all communication with him. And after that, to avoid communication with such people who will unite among themselves and create the synagogues of Satan, calling them by the names of the Lord. Here it's very interesting how blood is spilt with these lawless people. It is necessary to rid of this person by way of casting him out in the midst of God. It is the prerogative of God and the man of God who is clothed in the powers of the fatherhood of God. But we just must break off all communication and therefore depart from communication with these people. This means to spill the blood of the person who in the congregation of saints spilled innocent blood because in his heart there was envy. Envy grew into hatred. Hatred grew into slander, uh, dirty words. He attributed vices of others to himself or vices of him to others. Therefore, pray for us, brethren, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. In the last days, God pledged to review the flock of his sheep in order to deliver them from lawless leaders. This is terrifying. God has promised to himself review in the end days to review the flock of his sheep before the door of hope to review the flock of his sheep in order to deliver them from lawless leaders who justify the wicked and blame the righteous. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 24. Let's take a look at what is going to happen in our times. For thus is the Lord God. Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shield seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet? the residue of your pasture and, and to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet 
and as for my flock, they eat for eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink but what what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus is the Lord God to them. Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Therefore, to summarize, the person in whose heart there is the holiness of truth, thanks to which he leaves and breaks communication with wicked and lawless people who pretend to be champions of the truth, has an irrefutable proof of his love for the law of God. So, uh, in summary, what have I highlighted for myself so that we could write it clearly? What we, we must hate those who hate God. I have highlighted for myself what I have remembered, if I could remember it forever, that love and hatred are not feelings and emotions, that love and hatred is the obedience to the commandments of God. And love toward the neighbor is to do good to them and to stoop down to their level, but hatred or the spilling of the blood of the wicked is when I cease to communicate with them and I withhold from some kind of uh, communication with them. Well, how with my parents, brother Daniel? How do I do with my parents? Should I talk with them or not? I said, of course you should talk to them. Who are your parents? Please invite me to them. Oh, they're not here. They don't go to this church. They don't like this church. I said, "Who? what was your first question? And they're like, oh, I've already gotten an answer. Third, the selective love of God flowing out of the virtue of God in the atmosphere in which the peace of God rules and the boundaries of brotherly love despises a person who brings to God a sacrifice of a bull or sheep which has a blemish Deuteronomy 17.1 you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect for that is an abomination to the Lord your God in Hebrew, abomination is a heinous, disgusting, and intolerable lawlessness caused by rebellion against God. In Scripture, a sacrifice is viewed as our prayer, and the altar that sanctifies the sacrifice is viewed as the motives of our heart. So, a sacrifice is prayer, and the altar are the motives of our heart. This is the altar upon which our prayer is laid. We already know that the state of the heart of a person will affect his sacrifice or his prayer. A blemished prayer is a prayer that does not coincide with the requirements of worship in spirit and truth, because this kind of prayer comes from the blemished conscience of a person in which he portrays his will as the will of God and his thoughts as the revelations of the Holy Spirit. Psalms 49, verses 13-23 Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. 
and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. From the following indignation of God addressed to sinners, it follows that God hates those worshippers who hate instructions in the mouth of the messengers of God. So here it is written that they cast the words behind their back, although they've preached them. To offer a sacrifice of praise is to present your body to God as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God for reasonable service. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service means to observe the commandments of the Lord and not to observe some kind of emotional uh, emotional cares. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you paid attention to know the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect, you must first present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God for reasonable service. Only by bringing our body on the sacrificial altar as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God do we receive the legal opportunity to know God in His good, acceptable, and perfect will. However, by presenting your body as a living sacrifice, you should pay attention to how much your sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God, or whether your sacrificial altar is sanctified in accordance with the requirements of truth or not. Because specifically, the sanctified altar in accordance with the requirements established by God representing a cleansed conscience with the truth of the ruling teaching of Christ introduced into it is called to sanctify the living sacrifice. Very interesting for us here. So, I need conscience in order to present our bodies. Again, we pray, Lord, I present my body as a living, holy, and, and reasonable sacrifice. I call upon your good, acceptable, perfect will. Okay, we've said it, we may not understand it. Well, we have not yet fulfilled anything. Here it's very interesting that it turns out in order to offer a sacrifice of praise, it's necessary to not forget about the s- uh, sacrifice altar. This is the substance of our conscience that is cleansed from dead works, our conscience that is cleansed from dead works, that has the reigning teaching of Christ that has been introduced into it. And then when it has this, now it can sanctify the living sacrifice. Now it can bring itself as a sacrifice to God, which will allow us to know God in His good, acceptable, and perfect will. Because people bring themselves as a sacrifice, but God does not look at them as a sacrifice of animals. He looks at them as pigs that have been placed upon the altar because the sacrifice or the altar does not coincide with the requirements of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 3 And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, if I have not truth, love toward the truth, it profits me nothing. So a person did not present himself as a living sacrifice. He presented himself incorrectly. 
And if there is no love toward truth in the heart, again, this sacrifice is not needed by anyone. How unique. If there is no love toward the truth in the heart, no one needs this burnt offering that is offered by this person. To give our body to be burnt as a burnt offering, all while not having the love of God agape, is to depart your ear from hearing the law or resisting the preached word of God in the lips of his messengers. Proverbs 28, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. To depart our ear from hearing the law in the lips of the messengers of God is to walk the path of the wicked who hates correction because he contends for the place of the messenger of God. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the righteous is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way and who hates correction will die. So pay attention here. Here it is talking about the relationship toward the preached word of God. This is not just the wicked who caused disruption in the church. No. The wicked is the one who loves, who, who despises correction. He despises the word of God in that format. That is, he receives it in his heart. He does not like this. Not all people contend for to first place. Person knows that he himself will never be first. If he is selected on the second day, he will be in tenth place. But there are those people who know that they could take up the first position in the church. This does not make him wicked. Wicked is the one who hates correction. Why does he hate correction? Because he wants, uh, he does not want to make his heart into a correct altar. That's why the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. Based on the current striking statement, a person trying to worship God not in spirit and truth is doomed to death. And it is worth being separated from such worshipers. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? Pastor said it interestingly. To worship God in spirit and truth is to worship God in the truth that is engraved in our spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? This is to worship and to pray through the truth that is engraved in our spirit. If we pray with the prayer or with the truth that is engraved in our spirit, this is worship in spirit and truth. And the Father said, Oh, how he searches for worshipers in spirit and truth, or how he searches for those people who pray about that truth that is in their heart. And in order to engrave the truth in their heart, there is God's order that is involved in this. And a person, carnal, he does not want to accept God's order. And that's why he may transform into a lawless or wicked person. And God says, a sacrifice of these people is an abomination to the Lord. We are fully responsible for the choice of our fellowship with people whom God hates because of the way they worship God in which they resist God and give out their will for His will and their fabrications for the revelations of the Holy Spirit, illegally professing promises that do not in fact belong to them. Psalms 119 verses 112 through 113. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Double-mindedness is the personal point of view of wicked and lawless people regarding the doctrine of Christ, to which they justify their rebellion and their disagreement with the revelation of the messengers of God representing the essence of the ruling teaching of Christ. Proverbs 21:27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent. 
Cunningness is a special form of hypocrisy containing an insidious plan that carries a conspiracy and an evil plan in which an ungodly person speaks of love for the messenger of God and envies him in his heart and hates him, attributing his vices to him and to himself as revelations and moral character. Such deceit is considered as a shameful thing, infamy and debauchery, which in due time will receive due retribution. So, what can I understand quickly from this point, from this context? In the fact that in order to, before offering a sacrifice, we must care. I must care for my heart. My altar, the heart must be prepared and built into an altar. For this, it is necessary to cleanse it from dead works and to engrave on it the teaching of Christ. Now, all that is going to be placed on this altar, it is going to be accepted by God as a sacrifice and as a fragrance that is pleasing to God. But if our conscience is not cleansed, and it can be not cleansed under one condition, under one condition, it is cleansed the acceptance of the preached word. Faith is from hearing, and hearing is from the Word of God. He says, how do you preach if you're not sent? So here, there is a certain cooperation that occurs in the life of a person. So it is necessary to correctly prepare a state of our heart, to build it into a sacrifice, and then uh, to, to build a correct altar, and then offer a correct sacrifice. We must offer a correct sacrifice on a correct altar. If we have built our altar correctly, now let's, having had cleansed it from dead works, let's pray with those truths and according to those truths that we have learned, that we have placed in our heart, not just to make up prayers by uh, forming it into our problem or our situation. Let's agree that, okay, I've prepared an altar. This does not mean that if we place a pig on this altar, it'll become a lamb. No, we have prepared an altar so that we can pray according to those truths that we have placed in our heart. Fourth, the selective love of God flowing out of the virtue of God and the atmosphere in which the peace of God rules and the boundaries of brotherly love despises a person with diverse weights and dishonest scales. Proverbs 12-20, verses 22-23. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. Before we begin to consider the existing parable, it should be noted right away that, first of all, it relates to our relationship with each other in the midst of the assembly of saints. And if you pay attention, then in this parable, Pastor says, diverse weights and dishonest scales are somehow interconnected with the inadequate anger of a person. So the anger of a person, when there is human anger, God uses use person as having diverse weights and dishonest scales that are abominable to him. Therefore, diverse weights and dishonest scales are interconnected with inadequate anger of a person who is trying to repay his wrongdoer for evil or revenge his wrongdoer for evil committed against him or against his neighbors. In itself, the anger of a person is a completely normal feeling of any same person who stands guard over his sovereign rights, through which he reacts to both genuine injustice and apparent injustice in relation to himself and his relatives. As a rule, this feeling, and again, and this is a feeling emotion in a person with a controlling spirit is so strong that it deprives him of adequacy and reason at the same time in a person whose self-esteem is suppressed so when a person uh, is very angry wrathful he yells this means that a person has a controlling spirit there's something to think about right whereas in a person with a suppressed 
with a suppressed whose self-esteem is suppressed. A feeling of anger can be very weak or even absent. Therefore, this person does not react toward anger in any way. In other words, the wrath of an anger of a sane person is a measuring device in his conscience, which determines the degree of good and evil and accordingly reacts to both to the apparent evil and to genuine evil that invades the limits of his responsibility. And in the parable we are considering, this measuring device present in the conscience of a sane person is presented in diverse weights and dishonest scales. The phrase, do not say, I will recompense evil, meaning I will avenge. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. This points to the fact that the anger of a person is incapable of keeping him from evil if a person does not give place for the anger of God that can keep him from evil. Look at with what perfection and with what virtuosity David reacted to the evil emanating from Saul, presenting a place to the wrath of God that could protect him from the wrath of Saul. First Samuel chapter 24. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. So we see here that David had correct scales and correct weights. He did not use emotions of anger. For him, anger was a small indicator. And the pastor interestingly said, this is that indicator that we have. There's nothing wrong about this. You just don't can't show your anger. But pastor said, with this small indicator, we can... We can, um, it can show us what is evil. And sometimes we make a mistake. We think it's evil, but uh, it is not in fact. Uh, David, how he used anger, he passed on his anger to God so as not to have evil in his heart, so that God does not impute this to him as sin. Here is what Apostle James says about this weapon that can control anger. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why slow? Because in order for the emotion to be able to leave or depart, it's necessary to slow it. To slow anger, slow it, slow it, slow it, and then it disappears. And now he says, what must you do? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. According to these words, the weapon of God that retain, restrains our wrath and gives place to the wrath of God is our ability to accept the implanted word, which can save our souls from our anger, trying to deal with evil. The ability to accept the implanted word consists in the fruit of meekness of our spirit, which determines its unique firmness capable of breaking the strength of any bone. A few places of scripture, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Proverbs 25, 15, by long forbearance a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. It follows that a man taught meekness from Christ through the implanted word 
possesses in his conscience identical weights and honest scales, representing the wrath of God made dependent on the mind of Christ. Proverbs 11.1 Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A person with diverse weights and dishonest scales is a person with a conscience uncleansed from dead works, who is in the grip of his anger aroused from his envy toward people who are the bearers of God's wrath. Let's read it again. A person with diverse weights and dishonest scales about, about, about which God says, I despise, I hate dishonest weights and dishonest skills, is a person with a conscience uncleansed from dead works, who is in the grip of his anger, aroused from his envy toward people who are the bearers of God's wrath. Proverbs 29-10 through 10, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If a person has not cleansed his conscience of dead works by rejecting his people, the home of his father, and his carnal life, and through the implanted word, does not bring into his heart the greatness of the commanding doctrine of Christ, this person will not be ready and will not be able to accept the anointing of the king, priest, and prophet over his calling, which consists in the adoption of his body through the redemption of Christ and the erection of the powers of life in his body. Only by being anointed a king who controls his anger under the bridle as a good rider controls his horse, we can have honest weights and scales. Take a look why we cleanse our conscience and place the teaching of Christ. It's to represent the status of a king, priest, and prophet. And this is one of the components of the prince. This is the one who is able to control his anger. How important it is. We must have an anointed king. We must have an anointed king. If there's no anointed king, if I don't have order in my head, I cannot carry out anger that is bridled. I will speak my anger, but to lead the anger by the bridle, this is to represent anger to the Lord as David had done. And God likes this because when we do show our anger, these are dishonest, diverse weights and dishonest scales. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 10 to 13. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. So these faithful and honest scales and weights, pastors means that I need to uh, give the interests of God's anger to the Lord because having being led by human anger, this means that I have dishonest scales and diverse weights. All the weights in the bag are his work in our hearts, how important it is to act correctly in every situation. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. David, being a king, priest, and prophet, instructed the saints how they could not sin if there was anger that arose in them from the harm done to them to calm themselves and give place to the anger of God. Take a look at how David taught his disciples as a king, priest, and prophet. 
how we should battle with anger and give place to the wrath of God. He was a wonderful teacher about this, and he proved this in his life. Psalms chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, David says to his disciples, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Offering a sacrifice of truth and trusting in the Lord means confessing the truth of God expressed in God's justice toward wicked and lawless people who pour out wrath on saints for their righteous way of life. So he talked about how during anger we must not sin. First, what is necessary? We must stop. Second, it is necessary to calm down. Third, it is necessary to ponder, to ponder upon that word that is in our heart. And then it is necessary to bring a sacrifice of righteousness and trust in God. Then pray from the position of God, representing anger to God, speaking of His justice, reminding God so that He can demonstrate His righteousness and justice and His retribution. Take a look at what David said. There is anger. We have slowed, stopped, pondered. And then from the position of the heart, we began to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And again, to offer the sacrifice of praise is to uh, confess the truth of God, express in God's justice on the foundation of the Word of God and not on the foundation of our own emotions. And for this it is necessary to stop, to ponder, and begin to pray with those words that are in our heart so that God can pour out His justice upon the wicked and lawless people. Romans 12.19 Do not... Uh, Venge for yourselves, but rather give place to wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When I am told, Do not avenge yourselves, but give place to the wrath of God, I know how to do this. I stop, I ponder, and then from the position of the heart, I begin to pray, to pray and pour out the righteous judgments of wicked, on wicked and lawless people. I represent the will of God and not my emotions and feelings. To summarize this component, it follows that if we hate in ourselves diverse weights and dishonest skills in the face of the old man with his works and move away from communicating with people who have legalized dishonest skills and diverse weights, we will, therefore, show in our faith the holiness of God expressed in hatred for carriers of diverse weights and dishonest scales. And of course, here the old man is standing in the uh, initial position. From this, uh, if you've paid attention, uh, we see our correct relationship toward the preached Word of God that is pr- that was present in all four points. Therefore, we're going to thank God for that Word that we hear, that Word that we read, and that Word in which we are clothed in. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. We thank you, Lord, that upon this place you teach us, you clothe us, you instruct us, you tend to us, and this is our wonderful future. We thank you that today we are able to again and again be immersed in that truth 
that truth that we have kept in our heart. I thank you that today we are able to turn to the vessel of our heart and to take those truths that were placed in there and to make them the achievement of our mind. And we thank you that we can take them and remind them. We thank you that we make a covenant, an agreement with Abimelech. Abraham makes a, an agreement and is made completely dependent on those words and those truths that have been placed in our heart. We thank you, Lord, and we thank you for this full harmony in our essence, in our, between our spirit and the mind of Christ that dwells in our spirit with our soul, renewed by the spirit of our mind. And this allows us to be clothed into the new man who is preceded by the planting of grove trees out of white oak. We thank you that today this harmony between the spirit and soul allows us to spread our salvation given to us in Christ Jesus, not just to our soul, but also on the land of the Philistine, the Canaan land, in which you want to see your land, Israel. And for this it is necessary for us. It is necessary for us to plant a white oak. And for this it is necessary for our essence, for there to be a fellowship between our spirit and that truth that is in our spirit with our soul, with our Mimelech, so that these shepherds do not argue for over the revolutions of God, but for them to accept them and to live according to them. And this will allow you to remember your covenant that you have made with Abraham and to give it to us through Christ Jesus. We thank you for that salvation that we have and for that joy, the joy of salvation that is found in our spirit, in our soul, and in our body. We thank you and we ask you to fulfill us with the joy of your salvation, not just our spirit, but we ask you to fulfill with joy of salvation also the bodies of saints. Let them be filled. Let them be, let them be filled with joy, with unblemished joy. We thank you, Lord that our bodies have this unblemished joy. And we thank you for the reign of the resurrection of Christ in our bodies. We thank you that you have made this new covenant in Jesus Christ in the spilled blood with our new man. And today he, in cooperation with our spirit and soul, spreads this salvation over across our body. And today our whole essence is in this salvation in which you said that we were saved in hope and that ours, the salvation of our essence and that you have given us a promise that you will keep us until the day of your coming if we will keep ourselves in salvation saving our souls and through the proclamation of our lips saving our bodies through our clothing into the new man we thank you that you teach us from this place to love and to hate and these are not emotions these are not feelings these are the observance of your commandments and before demonstrating your love and demonstrating your hatred allow us to write your commandments in our hearts from the position of this truth we are able to demonstrate love and truth true brotherly love toward one another and true hatred toward lawlessness also our soul hates those that you hate these are not emotions. These, this is the proclamation of that truth that is found in our heart. 
Therefore, we stand upon your word, and from the position of your word, we ask you for you to pour out your rain, the rain of your indignation, the burn, your burning coals, fire and brimstone, and for the portion of the wicked to be out of the cup prepared for them. May your anger be poured out upon the wicked in the face of the old man. We want to today to proclaim our hatred toward who you hate in our essence that represents the power of death. May you pour out the fullness of your anger upon this wicked one because the streams of lawlessness have scared us, the chains of death have surrounded us. The snares of death have entangled us. And in our distress, we called out to you, and you have heard our voice, and you have lifted us up, and you have drawn us out from great waters, and you have set us on a broad place in the resurrection of Christ. And we thank you. We thank you for the broad place in Christ Jesus, in his resurrection. We thank you for that truth that we hear, we ask you, we ask you, Lord, and we truly have known that you answer your anointed one from your heavens. We just want to express our fear and our trembling before that word that you offer us. Through our pastor, we express this desire and we ask you to pour out on us your revelation. We ask you to send us rain, rain that is going to be able to scare your enemies. We thank you for that noise that we hear we thank you that today we are able to hear that which you hear and to look at that which you offer us and to wait for it in patience with hope. Keeping all these promises, we thank you, Lord, that we hear the sound of the rain. We hear the sound of the rain in our hearts because that promise regarding the rain of the resurrection of Christ in our bodies the adoption of our body, it has become a noise in the hearts of your saints. And we thank you, Lord, that these are not just words from the pulpit, but this is the noise in the heart of each person who loves you and who has love toward the truth. We thank you for this wonderful noise. And we thank you that you have shown this cloud at the, with the size of a palm upon which are written your promises that we are written on the palms of your hand and they have not forgotten your inheritance and that you have demonstrated your power and strength. And we thank you, Lord, that our names are engraved on the palms of your hand and that your names and the names of Jerusalem are written upon us. 
We ask you, we pray for that service that is on Friday and Sunday, and we with trembling we will wait for the revelation of your word, and we'll wait for you to heal us upon this place, from this place to comfort us and to uh, instruct us, and we will accept your correction as righteous, knowing that after it will be a great reward and comfort for your holy inheritance. May your name be blessed in the Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us conclude with our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.